This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Maywa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and if I sound a little nasally, it's because I have a tiny head cold. I am so excited to introduce you guys to one of my favorite writers. This is a guy who walks through the world with an incredibly open heart, and I don't mean like aiming for canonization open heart. We're not talking about that. But this is a dude who walks through the world in a way that not all of us can, but maybe more of us should try to do. So, Isaac Fitzgerald, it's so good to see you. Your first memoir is out. It's called Dirtbag Massachusetts. <laughs> I will never get tired of this title. But why don't you bring people in to what you've done with this book? How did it start? When did it begin? Well, meanwhile, first off, thank you so much for having me on the show. As you know, I'm a big fan as well. And also, I'm a big fan of you. Uh, so I'm so happy to be here. And I'm really excited we're making this happen. Um, this book, I, I wish I could tell you that I, uh, you know, went to a cabin and wrote it perfectly and got it in on time. And it just flowed out of me. Uh, but really, the truth of the matter is, is it came in bits and starts. And it was written on notepads and half-filled notebooks and phone apps and bar napkins. Uh, and it was a long, long project that I think I was working on before I even realized I was working on it. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about is I, I pitched it to Bloomsbury as a collection of essays, very much in line with Roxane Gay, who, of course, is somebody I deeply, deeply admire. And uh, one of her collections, uh, one of her first collections, Bad Feminist. Um, and I was thinking about something very much in line with that, which is that it would, uh, Roxanne so perfectly captures moments from her life in that book, while also tackling, uh, you know, either pop culture or main culture things, just like writing about all these different things. So it was, I was, that's what I was aiming for when I pitched it. I realized as I started to work on it, I realized as I started to write it that it was going to be a lot more focused on my childhood than I expected it to be, a lot less about kind of pop culture and things out there in the world and a lot more about my childhood and the way that I reacted to it. And I think that was something that had to come out through the writing because for a very long time, and I, I think this speaks to something, for a very long time in my 20s, one of the things I told everyone was that I was never going to write a memoir mm -hmm. of childhood, right? So I grew up in the 90s. I grew up in a time of, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. I grew up in a time of like a lot of white men writing like, oh, my sad childhood stories. And so my whole thing was, I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I would tell him, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Um, and then what happened is as I started working on this book, I realized not only was there a lot for me to unpack there, but I also wanted to understand what it was I was pushing against in those books that I read and deeply loved in the 90s uh, and 2000s, what it was that I, that I was kind of afraid of. And I think there's a there's a wonderful essay actually that uh, Brandon Taylor did recently uh, that's mm -hmm. on stack that talks about how I mean talks about many different things but one of the things he gets at is sometimes we're very averse to things when we think it's actually maybe deep down what we want to be doing and we mm -hmm. can't do it ourselves and so I think that's something that was happening there and through trying to write this book I found myself realizing that I wanted to write about my childhood also write about why I reacted to it the way that I did while also exploring what it was about those books that I was uncomfortable with and how I could make this book different. And, and to wrap it up, without, without giving too much away, I think the thing I was really trying to avoid was a lot of those books came with kind of a perfect 
bow ending. Mm-hmm. Like, here's what was messed up. Here's how I got over it. Here's why I'm better now. I recognize a lot of Massachusetts in your story, even though we grew up very differently. And, you know, neither of us has lived there in a really long time. We go back as we need to. But Massachusetts is the kind of place that you carry around with you. And it's not just New England. It's partially class. It's partially attitude. It's partially history. It's all of these weird moments that are instantly recognizable if you're from the place itself. So I want to talk about how Massachusetts made you. First off, really question and really insightful for you to take that away. And something that just popped into my head as you said that, mm-hmm. I, I just thought ever, but you're spot on, the way you carried around, even if you've left it behind, mm-hmm. which very much like Catholicism in that mm-hmm. way. You will meet many elapsed Catholic, but you can still see the effects of being raised within the church will have on that person throughout their life. You'll see the kinds of things that they still kept with them, um, despite maybe deciding to leave the religion behind. And that is absolutely true of Massachusetts. I think you're absolutely, like, don't get me wrong, I think it's true of New England as well. I don't want to make it that, like, just the Massachusetts. I think it's uh, true of many different areas in the country. But the thing about Massachusetts specifically, and you touched on it perfectly, is the class aspect to it. Which is to say, another thing I was trying to come across in this book is I grew up in one of the lowest income areas Mm -hmm. in the state. But that's still one of the lowest income areas in a very wealthy state. So what does that look like when you have poverty that close to areas of great, great wealth? And what does it look like when your version of poverty compared to those around you is very different than the levels of poverty you might find in other parts country. Um, But the way that Massachusetts formed me through and through, I was born and raised in Boston. I think that had a huge impact on who I am as a person. I love boats. I love the water. Uh, I won't lie. We are taught a very specific type of history in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure that has opened up more since the 80s. Uh, But uh, one, we're taught that like basically the Revolutionary War was all us. Uh, Forget everybody else. And we made it all happen. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of storytelling in in my life from a very, very early age. And I do. I think the Catholic Church is, you know, it's, it's, it's based on a lot of things, but it's also very much based on a collection of stories. On a, mm-hmm. History, again, is nothing but a bunch of usually made up and to make, uh, you know, the people in power look good uh, stories. But so there's that storytelling aspect to it. And then because of my parents' very unique position, which is to say they were unhoused, they were also educated. Uh, which is something that you will also find in Massachusetts. Again, that comes from this, like, being low income, but in a very wealthy state. You, you, like our friend Connor in the book, uh, his mother, it's, it's very much living in the woods. This is after we move out of Boston, but she's this perfect example of a wonderfully caring woman, mm-hmm. incredible librarian, uh, who spoke five languages, um, but lived well below the poverty line. You know, so you, you find that that's all to say that you, you could really get an education in that state no matter where you're at. And that is to say, going back to my parents, they were educated, they were unhoused. But growing up where they raised me in Boston, in the Catholic work, Worker, which for those that don't know, is an organization started by Dorothy Day um, and is, is very rooted in both Catholicism, but also socialism. So a lot less of the pageantry of the main Catholic church, a lot more of the give your shirt off the back if somebody needs it, meant that I was raised around all these other people who had incredibly unique stories themselves. So the one way that Massachusetts affected me growing up 100% is how much books and storytelling 
and and to be honest, personal lore. Because especially New Englanders, especially people from Massachusetts, love that personal lore. And I do. I think that gets back to the Paul Revere ride, the history, oh, without a shot around the world. Like, so like a deep, deep interest in, in kind of personal lore that I definitely think shaped me. And then the other thing that I would say is, is from my childhood, um, like I said, I moved from inner city Boston to a very rural part of the state. That is the other aspect that I would not give up for anything because it meant that I did have a very city-based life. I knew what it was to, to live basically a walking life, right? Using public transportation or just walking or riding your bike everywhere. And then all of a sudden living in a very rural area where, of course, I rode my bike a ton, but you basically couldn't walk anywhere unless you were in for a really long day. Um, trying to make friends with older kids just because they had a beat-up jalopy that they could get you place to place with. And I wouldn't give up that kind of love of the outdoors that came from that rural upbringing and also the love of city and culture that came from my Boston upbringing for anything. But as you alluded to a second ago, your parents' relationship was tricky. They were married to other people when they had you. They were unhoused. They had met, if I remember correctly, in divinity school, right? Mm-hmm. So graduate school. Mm-hmm. It seemed problematic more for your mother's family than your dad's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you were living next door to your grandmother. And this is where things become really quite intense, I think, in ways that no one could have predicted, including your parents. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you picked up on that. Because I think in their own way, they were going through their own relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. They were married when they had me, just to different people, like you said. Um, but they do eventually come together. It, t- it took some years. But mm-hmm. they eventually get married. And then the problems did not stop. And they were still having issues. But at, at that time, my mom and I moved out there alone for a little while. My father would follow eventually. But I think the purpose of that move, I think mm-hmm. there were a lot of different things that were unspoken. But the spoken purpose was to get me out of the city. Things, things had been rough. There had been some some tough moments. And I think they were making the choice to try and better their lives. They really believed that. I, re- I, I have to believe that that's what mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. Like you said, neither of them could predict that actually that is where things would get way, way worse. But that tumult allowed you to find a way out that you wouldn't have found otherwise, I believe, at least in reading the book. And a librarian essentially saved your life by mm-hmm. showing you the way out to boarding school. Another thing my parents had, and, and even living in Boston, the place they would bring us all the time, because again, it was also free, right? Um, God bless librarians, God bless libraries, uh, and God bless spaces that are provided by the city that you can still go to for, for no money. And I hope there's a lot more of that, to be honest. But so God bless libraries, my parents would bring me to the Boston Public Library as a small child. It's where I, I, I spent so much of my time. Books were very, very important to both of my parents. It's the one thing they endowed me from a very early age. It was, it was really made clear to me how important books and reading were. Um, and so because of that, I, of course, fell in love with libraries. We move out to, to rural uh, North Central Massachusetts. And even then, I would bike to the next town over. There was a bookstore there because I, I was never buying anything. And I think that basically the deal was, look, don't steal anything. And you can hang out here and read whatever you want, you know? And so, and there was a, there was a public library, of course, in the town as well. And so I'd go there. Um, it, it had odd hours, but, but whenever I had the chance. And so I came to think of spaces with books as places where I could get away from my family because things were getting rough. The house was very loud. 
but also places where I, I knew I, I could have some peace. I could have some respite and also places, of course, and everyone that loves books, I think has this moment in their childhood where you realize that they are just perfect, perfect escape hatches and just sitting there and just being able to get anywhere other than what I was going through in my life was so, so important to me. So by the time I get to middle school, it's, it's kind of built into me to befriend librarians as quickly as <laughs> possible. At that time, at the age of 12, is when I start finding trouble. My parents actually mm-hmm. are maybe starting to just get a little better. And that's when I start really finding trouble. Um, and I start hanging out with all sorts of different people, but usually much, much older than me. I'm usually 12, hanging out with like 18-year-olds. And in, the, in that moment, I had a friend uh, whose mother was also a librarian at the school. She st- started kind of watching out for me. At one point, I didn't get fight. And I end up getting in-school suspension. They, usually you get suspended, you get sent home, but the school is like, well, we don't know what's going on in his house. So we're going to keep him in, in school. In that moment, I could tell like the librarians really kind of started to rally and, and even got some secretaries involved. And eventually that led to them urging me to apply for a boarding school and for a scholarship. And there was, there was a school in the area and they basically would dole out a scholarship every year. <laughs> like it's really, not to get too in the weeds here. But mm-hmm. Listen, I can't prove this, but in my mind, that school's existed since the 1800s. And I have a sneaking suspicion it's, it's big, it's beautiful, it's up there on a the hill, and it's surrounded by a lot of poor towns. So I think there's a little bit of a like, look, we'll, we'll educate like one of you from the area every year. Don't come burn it all down. I, again, <laughs> that real thing, I, Mm, maybe a story, but that's I looking back on it, that's how it feels to me. But I did, I got very lucky and, and through the help of a lot of adults who cared. And I want to be clear, my parents cared too. They were just going through a lot of their own stuff at the time. But through a lot of adults that cared, I was then able to change the trajectory of my life, which is up until that moment. I wasn't thinking about college. I wasn't thinking like I just wanted, I just wanted to get going in life. And that put me out of it took me out of my home at the age of 14. And it put me in a position, don't get me wrong, had its, as you know, in the book, had its own, whole other infrastructure and other things that could go wrong, but uh, 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 a structure to succeed that I'd never been in before. It also teaches you how to code switch. And that's a phrase that recently, I think more people have come into contact with in the mm-hmm. context of race or sexual identity, where you sort of have to tamp down whatever it is that makes you not considered more mainstreamy, shall we say. And you really had to learn how to do that too, because class is part of that equation and part of that code switching. And I will say you are one of the most polite human beings I have ever met in my life. And you have an explanation for that that pops up late in the book that I'm going to leave for readers to discover, because my feeling about that was always that it had something to do a little bit with your background, Mm -hmm. that you were overly polite because you had to sort of earn your space Mm-hmm. wherever you were. I don't think I'm entirely wrong about that, but your explanation is a barn burner of an explanation. At the same time, you're still kind of doing it. I mean, in this book, you're diving into perceptions of masculinity. You're talking about body dysmorphia, which straight white men do not usually talk about. You're talking about your teenage fight club, which we are going to talk about that mm-hmm. because I shouldn't have been laughing, but I was. Okay. Um, and your hair. Mm-hmm. Straight white men don't usually talk about their hair. And you've got a pretty great chapter, or I should say essay, mm-hmm. about your hair. So I want to I wanna step back for a second because those are all things that come out of you learning to work in two worlds. 
Mm-hmm. There's family, there's home, there's what that means in terms of class, in terms of access, in terms of everything else. And then there's this world that you build because you've been able to change direction because you're at a fancy school, you're going to go to another fancy school. You're going to end up working in politics for a minute and a half, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I always find fascinating. Yeah. And then you're going to find books and writing and you were a publicist at a small house for a while and you've been a managing editor at an online publication. You've done all sorts of stuff. Founding editor of BuzzFeed Books. I mean, hi, you've done a lot. But let's start with the code switching. Let's yeah. start about what you learned because that's going to influence you as an adult. Well, yeah, and, and it deeply, deeply does. And one, I, meanwhile, I just want to say, I think, you're, again, your read on it is, is perfect and terrific because you're right. There is that... And we won't give it away, but there's that explanation at the end. But no, of course it was born of this. Of course, part of the politeness that you see in me is born of a kid coming from a very rural, very impoverished situation and all of a sudden being at a boarding school and the embarrassment of not knowing how to tie a tie, of showing up. I didn't even have a suitcase. I brought a sleeping bag. Uh, everyone else, of course, had sheets because they knew it was like, we're living. I was, I was like, I don't know, like it's like a camping trip. Like, so there's all these different things that I realized I was missing right out of the gate. And I realized I had to learn very quickly to keep up and then to do my best, as, as, as you perfectly said it, to try and blend in. Because that was the other thing I really, I was, I already felt like a scholarship kid. And this, I want to, I want to be honest here, right? There's nuance in all things. At the time when you're 14 and you're walking up a hill with a bag on your back and you're watching other families drop off their kids you start to think, oh, I'm the only scholarship kid here. Mm-hmm. But that's not the truth, right? The fact of the matter is there are other kids on financial aid. There are other kids on scholarship. There were day students. There are all these different types of students, right? But when you're, when you're isolated and you're alone and you're not communicating with other people, you start to feel like really like, oh, I'm standing out. Oh, I'm standing out. I'm, so I really, really, really wanted to do my best to blend in. So a few things happened there. One, my freshman year, I practiced my R's. Mm-hmm. This is not in the book. I sat in my dorm room and I enunciated. I lost my Boston accent. I'd grown up in Boston. The area I lived in, North Central Mass, nobody had the accent out there. Lose the accent. Practice for a year at boarding school so that I sound like I'm not from inner city Boston. Mm -hmm. 15 years old. Next year, Goodwill Hunting comes out. This school, for the record, had kids from all around the world. All of a sudden, kids from Europe are using the Boston accent. Mm -hmm. They sound like... Matt Damon and goddamn Goodwill Hunting. I worked so hard to lose it. My best, again, to use his name in the book, Connor. Connor, I don't think he'd been to Boston like once in his life. Also, I come back from school. He's talking with him. All of a sudden, my whole life. Oh, it made me mad. <laughs> I, I, I lost it. I lost it. I practiced trying to lose it. And so that was obviously part of the, the, the as, as you put it, the code switching journey for me. And I, I But I want to get back to, again, another thing that we talked about earlier, which is Talking about how Massachusetts does have this wealth and this poverty smash right mm-hmm. one another. But another place that, that is very, very true, I mean, it's true in most cities, let's be honest. There's most cities, you can point to Chicago, you can point to New York, you can point to places where you only go a few blocks and all of a sudden you're a whole different neighborhood. But one of the smallest, in my opinion, like seven miles by seven miles, San Francisco yep. is a whole place with incredible, incredible wealth gaps. Mm-hmm. place that I then decide to spend 10 years of my life later on. I slowly started realizing that I had to act one way when I was at home with my friends who would have no, at that point in my life, I had never even been on a plane. I'm not, they had, I had never even been on a plane. All of a sudden I was going to school from kids from other sides of the planet and I was learning so much and I was finding out that I really enjoyed certain aspects of that. 
And I'd be going home and all of a sudden I'd realize they're not going to, like, they don't want to talk about this. And that's when something became very clear to me, which is I went to boarding school with a huge chip on my shoulder because that was another part of it. Like there's a, there's a, especially if you grow up with certain class, especially in Massachusetts, you have such a pride about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I had that pride, this place where was I code switching a hundred percent? Did I have to act one way in one place and one way in another? Absolutely. But what that also allowed me to do was realize that a lot of the prejudices that I was coming into the space with weren't, weren't serving me either. And all of a sudden realizing like, oh, actually, it doesn't have to be about me being one person or another person. I can bring the two knees together and recognize that there's actually good throughout the world. And it's about breaking that barrier down. Which, again, not to get into the rhythm and the cyclical and not trying to give too much away, is something I think in a big way I brought back to my parents. All of a sudden you recognize, no, they were dealing with their own things and were doing their best. I think you also get to a certain age, too, and you really can't keep blaming your parents for stuff after a certain point. And that point's different for everyone, but I... Yeah, I sort of feel like you do get to a point where you're like, uh, you know, uh, now I make my own choices. <laughs> this one might be on me. This one might be on me. <laughs> you have a couple of this one might be on me moments. I mean, there are a couple of motorcycle crashes. There's some other stuff. I mean, you go physically as far away as you can, almost in the continental United States, mm-hmm. San Francisco, which seven by seven, but it is its own universe and we're talking pre-tech boom mm-hmm. pre san francisco was still a little messy yeah it was still a little raw second, like there was a nice little dip so 99 there's the first the dot-com boom and then it, the bubble bursts and then there's a nice little place where you could still get like rent for under 500 bucks on mission mm-hmm. with like four roommates in a one bedroom and then it went back up once, you know, the second much more structured tech. But yes, yes, I moved out there basically in the early aughts and, and, and kind of rode that to And made your way. But ultimately, San Francisco wasn't going to be home. And I'm, I'm dancing around San Francisco because a lot happens. Mm-hmm. But also, it doesn't become home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It gets you to the place where you say, oh, I can go back east. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't want to wash dishes in a bar anymore. Maybe I do actually want a job job. Mm-hmm. And you started making sort of a little path towards that. There were a couple mm-hmm. of jobs in San Francisco that led you to what ultimately brought you back to New York. But what did you bring to San Francisco that you left behind? Mm. I love that city so much. Like mm-hmm. that, here's the fun thing. It's interesting. Like I think the, what you just described is absolutely right because that is what happened. But it's hindsight 2020 is always right. easy. I'm telling you, the month before I left San Francisco, which I believe was like, I think I leave at the very end of November in 2013. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, you talked to me on November like 7th, even maybe, maybe not, that, but like October 30th of 2013, I would have been on Ocean Beach. I would have been like, I bleed orange and black, San Francisco forever, never going back. I love this place. Like I don't, Google buses, tech money's coming in. We'll fight it. We're going to win, like never. And then a couple of things happened, but, but the, 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 the most important thing was just like, my brother had his first kid. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I, I'm going to be the weird uncle. I'm going to be the weird uncle no matter what. But I don't want to be the weird uncle that's 3,000 miles away. Then a job opportunity comes up. 
And then, to be honest, the project of this book that I didn't even realize was starting was beginning to start, which was me reconciling with my family. Because at that point, I hadn't been home in a Christmas or Thanksgiving for almost a decade. Um, and that's when I started taking steps towards realizing life is not forever. In fact, mm-hmm. very, very short. And again, I want to be very clear. You don't need to make amends with the people you don't want to make amends with. Mm-hmm. I got that itch. And I had, I was starting to get that itch. Is I got to start playing like a loose tooth in the back of your mouth. I just started playing with it. And it was just kind of like, if I don't explore that, there's always going to be some sense of what if. And that's going to be so much harder to explore all the way out here. Um, but I love, I love San Francisco so, so much. And don't get me wrong. I understand it's different. I go back and many friends have already left, but what friends are still there are like, oh, you don't understand. There's this and there's this. And it's not home for sure, but it was a place that served me so, so well for so, so long that I always have a deep fondness for it. I want to talk about some of your literary influences. It was an eye-opener for you. You had this great formal education, mm-hmm. and yet no one had ever really sat you down and said, well, you know, writing is a craft. Writing is a thing you can learn to do. Mm-hmm. This is another one of my favorite stories, and it's not in the mm-hmm. book. I'm so glad we're talking about it. After college, like, you, like we touched on real quick, I wouldn't work in politics. There's an essay that's not in the book that's about that. Um, got a guy that's Congress, basically was like, wait a second. And now we just do it again. Like, just re- really realized at the last, because I got a full scholarship to college as well, and basically just decided to study political science. And then right out of school, worked on this campaign and was like, oh, no, I might have just really wasted that college scholarship. This is, I did not like this at all. And so not knowing what to do, I bounced back north for a little bit. I painted houses. It's a whole other story. But then I eventually make my way out to San Francisco. I was moving there for a relationship, which let's be honest, I think when I showed up, there was a little bit of a, oh, you really, huh? You really, you really, oh, you did it. Cool, 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 cool. For the record, wonderful person. I want to just, I'm a wonderful person. But I think at the moment it was a little bit, huh, you actually showed up. Basically, I, I start working at Boogie Beppo, which is like the Olive Garden, but worse. But that actually, to be honest, I think her hour is probably still the most money I've made in my life because it was, I was, I didn't have to work full days. It was right by a conference center, saying happy birthday like a hundred times a day. It was it was a horrible job. The money was there, rent was low, and so I had this free time. And that's when this this person in my life pointed out eight two six Valencia, which is a creative writing center started by Dave Eggers and the people behind McSweeney's. Um, but I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that there was a sign, and that's what my friend was like. There's just this sign, and it says storytelling and bookmaking workshop. I'm like, great. I go in. Five minutes into this meeting, they, they ever, everyone sit at a big table. It dawns on me that this is a volunteer recruitment meeting. And it's to help kids with their homework and writing. And it had nothing to do with helping me tell stories or make books. But you can't get up in that moment because you look like a jerk. You look, listen, I was 23. I didn't really care about kids. I'm going to say that very honestly. Uh, love them now. But at the time, I had other issue, interests. So they kept talking, they kept talking. And in that moment, I, I noticed on the wall were all these pieces of paper, just single pieces of paper that had typing on them and they were covered in pen marks. And I raised my hand and, and the person said, what are you looking at? And I was like, I'm just wondering, what are these pieces of paper that are on the wall? And they were like, oh, well, these are all pages from man- manuscripts of books that have actually been published from Dave's friends. And in my head, I was like, I don't know who Dave is, but okay, we'll get to that later. And they're like, Dave's friends. 
So these all got turned into books. And the reason they're up on the wall is to show the kids that while writing is a very, you know, kind of solo art, once you, 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 you write your stories, you can give them to either family members or editors or trusted teachers or friends or people you care about. They'll give you feedback. You don't have to take all of it. But that will make your story better. And in that moment, I was 23 years old. Up until that moment, like I said, raised throughout my entire life to love books. I thought writing was a gift. I thought writing was you got touched by God. You either had it or you didn't. And I tried some real bad poetry in high school. And I knew I didn't have it. (laughs) I knew I loved books. I knew I loved them. But I didn't think I could write. And in that moment, I was like, like, yes, we should teach eight-year-olds this. But in my head, I was like, like, it can be a craft. And that's, it, it can be something you work at and get better. I'd worked on cars. I'd grown up doing all sorts of different things with my hands. I, I knew what it was to practice and get better at something, to gain knowledge from somebody else, who had more knowledge and get better at it. And all of a sudden I was like, it doesn't have to be me, which is what I pictured, in an ivory tower, typing a perfect manuscript, just hitting print and sending it to New York where they put a cover on it and then you're a millionaire. Guess what? None of that's how it works, especially the millionaire part. But that's what I thought writing was up until that moment. That's truly with a great high school education, a great college education. Up until that moment, that's what I thought. And that's what changed for me in San Francisco. And at that point, I started journaling. I started writing horrible, horrible things, but trying and realizing they were bad, but knowing that I could get better. And most importantly, that's where I found community and what happened. and, And we mentioned the tech thing, not to totally you know, make it evil. There's some good stuff that there was. Don't forget, there was some good stuff that came out of all this. And one of them was all of a sudden you could find communities anywhere. Mm-hmm. You just have to. So I found the local San Francisco literary community for which I'm deeply grateful. And I want to give kudos where kudos is due. The, the, the folks behind McSweeney's really, really touched me in all sorts of different ways. That includes Dave, 100%, who I would go on to work for at McSweeney's. Um, and his wife, Benda Levito, who's a wonderful writer in her own right, and many of the other San Francisco literary people. But then through the internet, all of a sudden, I was working with the likes of Roxanne Gay, with Cheryl Strayed, which was incredible. I got to be, again, managing editor. She didn't need a lot of edits. I was basically putting in a CMS. But she, when she was doing Dear Sugar, back when she was still anonymous, that had just a huge impact on me. Peter Orner, another incredible writer from this San Francisco area that just like deeply, deeply touched me. The list goes on and on. Right. Paul Beatty's work, which I discovered on the West Coast and then got to know him and now we're friends in New York, which is like wild to White me. Boy Shuffle still mm. holds. It still holds. And that book is, I've read it multiple times, but the first time I read it was in Galley. Oh, so it was wow. a really long time ago. But it still, that novel still reads like it was written... I don't want to say yesterday, but very recently. It is wild how great that book is. He's he's so, so good. He's so, so funny. And I'm not joking. You and I, I, I mean, it wasn't a galley, but I'm telling you, I, I mentioned that I was living in like yeah. one bedroom with like God knows how many roommates. It was one of my roommates who like, yep. was like, you're like this. And like, I was just like, oh, and it was my book. So there are all those artists. Um, just, I mean, again, not just through the West Coast, but then through the internet that right. I got on. And so there's so many people that have influenced me, but like the last few shout outs that I want to give is one, Nick Flynn, to pretend like Dirtbag, comma, Massachusetts, which shout out to Jason Diamond. He's the person that actually gave me the idea. But but lastly, the, the last one that I kind of want to stop with is, is one that actually doesn't come from anywhere where I've been. And I never met the person that wrote it, but it's a book that my father actually gave to me when I was very young. It was the first time that I saw 
not exactly the, the place I was growing up, but the class level that I was growing up at reflected back into me. And that is the collected uh, stories of Reese the Jay Pancake, who himself was actually a writer from Virginia. He wrote a lot about West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And that is a book that I keep giving copies and copies. I've probably given 20 copies out of it, uh, copies out. I have I have a first edition. It's one of the only first editions I have. But that book was, uh, was such a powerful moment for me when I read it and realized, oh, these stories, kind of like that ivory tower moment, these stories don't have to be like this. They can, they can be this other way. Paul Beattie's book did that same thing. Oh, I didn't know a book could be this. I could name influences all day long. And I could name 100 people that helped me make these stories better. So many friends mm-hmm. and editors worked on these pieces. Like that's that collaborative effort is, is why that book that you're holding exists. But the thing for me that I think is the most important is to remember that books can really be whatever you want them to be and to seek out the books that teach you to open you up to, to the place where you can get your story to where you want it to be. That to me has always been the most important and influential thing. How did writing this book change you? You know, I did the audio recording for it recently, mm-hmm. which is an interesting experience for many different reasons. One, knowing the words that I use that I don't know how to pronounce, um, but, but for many other reasons as well. It was interesting and moving because it's probably going to be the first, the last time in, a, in at least a while that I'm actually going to read this book cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to, it's not like in a year I'm going to sit down and just like, you know, I got a lot of other stuff. I got a lot of other books I want to read. Um, so it was the last time really sitting with this book from the first page to the last page. One of the things that most, most moved me was being able to recognize my own growth in it and how much I was figuring out my rhythm relationship with my parents just by writing this book um and and in a way preparing for a next step in our relationship mm-hmm. and relationship that is now happening that you know not giving too much away but the book gets to a certain point and then stop um i then handed it to them it was very important to me that they wrote mm-hmm. you know i made it very clear that it's not like they were going to have editorial control over it or anything but i wanted mm-hmm. to have it my mother and I in particular have been having some incredible conversations that I never thought possible. I never thought possible. Uh, and that's just meant the absolute world to me. Mm-hmm. And you'll appreciate this coming from Massachusetts yourself. My father and I have talked about it in that, in that other way. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you climb Kilimanjaro with your dad? Yeah. There have been jokes. And there have been one-liners and there has, but there has been a softness mm-hmm. and a curiosity, I think, from him that has been very, very touching as well. So the thing that this book really, really changed and what it's about at its core is, is my relationship with my parents. And then to, to take myself out of that relationship and just focus on myself for a moment, uh, the thing that's changed in me is to know that I can do this. Right. You know, we're talking about some like I'm not not to put it in these terms, but you know I'm a book fanboy. And don't get me wrong, I wrote children's books, and I have wonderful, wonderful illustrated books with the incredible Wendy McNaughton mm-hmm. about and I'm very proud of those books. This took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort, but it's done now. And and starting another one is going to feel like a monumental task. I'm sure, mm-hmm. but it will be just that much easier. Because I know I've done it once before. And that's really exciting. Which is good to hear, because it's also an essay collection that has an arc. It has a story arc. This isn't just 
pieces strung together because you had written them somewhere else. And it was like, oh, here, I can just put it next to this. There is a definite arc in the way you reveal your growth and who you are in the way this book is constructed, which is really a joy to read. I walked into it knowing some of the stories, but not all of the stories. (laughs) And it was really, it was exciting for me as a reader to know that you had experienced something profound putting this to paper. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who could use this book right now. And I think everyone's been through it in the last few years. And some of us have asked some hard questions. Some of us have not. We'll all get there. But it's ultimately a book that has a lot of gratitude, has a lot of hope. And it's very honest and not in a way that is treacly. So I'm just really hoping that readers will come to Dirtbag Massachusetts with as much of an open heart as you walk through the world, my friend. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Isaac Fitzgerald. Dirtbag yeah. Massachusetts Your is out. words really mean so much to me. Like, thank you. And that's so wonderful to hear. And that, because that, listen, as you know, that art took a long time to bang. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know it took a long time, but it's here now, and that's really yeah. all that matters. So thanks again. Thank you, Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Dirtbag Massachusetts. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. We're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, We've got a couple of books to share. Uh, Becky, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Go right ahead. Great. So I thought about uh, dark comedy, um, sort of a bleakness-laced with humor uh, and coming of age. And I thought of a book that is very formative for me, which was Running With Scissors by mm. Augustine Burroughs. I really like the way he writes. Um, he makes me giggle. Um, he has a David Sedaris kind of self-deprecation going on that I attach myself to often. Um, and I just remember reading this book uh, when I was young and thinking, oh, books can do this too. Like it, it sort of unlocked a permission in me that made me think that stories can do something more than just entertain, but they can also teach and, and I don't know, just fill in this life in a really wonderful way. This book charts um, Augustine's childhood life um, in the 1970s um, when at 12 years old, his mother, who was suffering from some debilitating bipolar disorder amongst other um, mental illnesses, she decides to um, upload or unload, I guess, uh, her son onto her psychiatrist to raise him. So he basically joins this family of his mother's psychiatrist, his family members who are a combination of found family, birth family, random people who kind of wander from the street sometimes it's <laughs> it is a cuckoo household um and augustine has to navigate these waters while still trying to grow up into a person um and the stories are bizarre they are wretched they are funny i feel like i laughed several times when i felt like i wasn't supposed to but i did anyway um and and still full of hope um he's a fantastic writer and i Really recommend any of his books, but Running With Scissors is a great place to start. Uh, I got to meet Augustine Burroughs once at a um, an author event. 
Yeah, it would it would have been awesome, um, except for when I was standing in line, like waiting for him to like be face to face with me. I'm holding my beat up copy of Running with Scissors, and I get to the front of the line. He's very very nice, weirdly incredibly handsome um, and tall, and I just said you're great and thrust the book into his hand to sign and ran away. So I nailed it. Basically, you did. we became you did. best friends after that. <laughs> um, anyway. Please check him out. Uh, Running with scissors is wonderful. Becky, do you have one for us? I, <laughs> I do. Thank you. Um, that yeah, no, that's a great one. Honestly, it's very similar to uh, the book that I thought of. Um, the uh, this is a more recent find for me, uh, so I don't have that history that you do <laughs> with uh, Running with Scissors. But um, this is uh, the called the Tender Bar by uh, J.R. Moringer, and nice. um, yeah, there it's oh. Wow. It, it's, it's just, a, it's a great book. It's, it's a coming of age tale. Um, it's about found family. Uh, and actually this is, um, it's a new Amazon original movie that came out the end of last year with Ben Affleck. So you may be familiar with it from there, but it is, um, like I said, just a, a young man's journey uh, growing up to kind of find out what it is to be a man. Uh, and he's having a little trouble because he has an MIA dad. Uh, he just, um, the interesting thing with that, though, is that his dad is a New York City disc jockey, so he can listen to his dad on the radio. He just can't really get any face-to-face time with him. So uh, it's huh, it kind of tugs at your heartstrings a little bit in that uh, when you kind of learn that of just like he's like listening to the radio, trying to eke out what is it, you know, oh, what's my dad like and how do I become like that? And, uh, and meanwhile, his mom is working her butt off and, and really trying to be an incredible single mom. And she is, uh, but he's not getting everything that he needs. And so what happens is he kind of stumbles uh, down to the bar at the corner that is run by his uncle. And, uh, and there he finds the found family that he needs. Uh, he just, the cast of characters in that bar is crazy uh and it's and it's everyone from every walk of life and they all kind of lend a hand in raising him uh you know they take him to ball games they take him uh to the beach and he learns some of those life lessons that um that he was trying to find from that absentee father that he had so it's just it's like i said kind of tugs on the heartstrings but also you will have those laugh out loud ridiculous (laughs) moments as well um, so yeah, uh, I would just highly recommend it. It's the tender bar by J.R. Moringer. Oh, fantastic <laughs> picks today. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Uh, thank you everybody. That's all we have. So thanks for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can follow us at Barnes and Noble. I am Mark. I am Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks so much, everyone. Happy reading and have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.